0: talk to laugh through the pain of the U.S. education system. We'll see you there. Это второй сезон нашей
1: борьбы с криминальными сволочами. Ваш ведущий
2: Дрек Олиар. I'm Greg O'Liar. This is Prevail. Welcome to the program. We've got a great show. The author of Stoned and the Truth About Lies, my friend Asia Raiden is here. We talk about a lot of stuff. We talk about blood diamonds and Bitcoin being a scam and oil and global warming and how that's going to affect things in the next 50 years and how anti-Semitism is always a precursor to fascism and oligarchs and Putin and Russian history and how this madness in Ukraine is going to end and what it might mean geopolitically in China if Russia becomes a functioning democracy. So there's a lot of really heavy things that we discuss on this episode. Um, interesting things, but heavy. So before we get into the heavy, I want to talk about something not heavy. I want to talk about Wordle just for a minute. Um, I started playing Wordle about, I don't know, two months ago. I-, I was not an early adopter to Wordle. My wife had been playing for a while and I'm like, ah, I'll just do it. If you're not familiar, now it's been sold to the New York Times, but it's still free for now. And what's cool about it is that um, it's only one per day. You know, there's a, a, a five letter word and you try to guess the five letter word in a variety of guesses. And it tells you which letters are right in your guess and which ones are wrong and which one is in the right place and which one is in the wrong place. And you have six tries. And if you don't guess it in six tries, I think you die. No, uh, you don't solve the wordle. You, you, you have the ignominity of not solving the Wordle for the day. And what I've determined, having done this now for a, a couple of months, is that there's like stages of Wordle. There's stages of things that happen in Wordle, The fir- at least for me. The first thing is that at some point in the day, usually right in the morning, um, I remember, oh, I get to do Wordle. And then I start doing the Wordle. And I always start with the same word, which is Sabre, S-A-B-R-E. It's a pretty good start word. So the first step is, oh, good, I get to do Wordle. And then after I get like two or maybe three, I start to have this panic. And the panic is like, oh shit, what if I don't solve the wordle? What if I don't solve it? What's going to happen to me if I don't solve the wordle? And then there is relief that you solve the wordle. That's the third step. And the fourth step, which is usually about 15 minutes after you solve the wordle, is you could put a gun to my head and I would not be able to tell you what the word was. (laughs) (laughs) It's very strange. It's a fun game. So it's been fun. It's been a pleasant little diversion from all the horrible madness going on in the world, which Asia and I discuss, um, which we discussed last week with Zarina and with uh, Moscow Never Sleeps. Thank you for listening to that show and for sharing it. I know it got downloaded a whole bunch of times and and I got a lot of nice responses from people, uh, which I passed along. And thank you for that. Thank you for listening. If you subscribe... ...to my Prevail site. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate it. It does keep the lights on. If you like the show, please tell a friend, share it. It, it, do the thing where you sign up for it... ...depending on what app you use, if you do it on your phone or whatever. You just usually hit the little plus button and then it'll download automatically and that would help me out a lot. So, But thank you. I appreciate all of that. So we're going to talk about this uh, at the top of the of the interview... ...but Asia is actually in a documentary called Nothing Lasts Forever which is about the diamond industry and kind of the... She writes about it in both of her books. Sort of the, the inherent myth-making, as she calls it, in the diamond industry and how successful it is as a long con. So she talks about this in the documentary. I haven't seen it. It's, it's in, it was South by Southwest. It's in theaters now. It's going to be streaming, I think, on Showtime. I'm not sure when yet, in a couple of weeks. So please take a look at that. I'm going to put the, uh, the preview which she's in, in the show notes, so you can take a look at it, and uh, I'm excited to watch it when it comes out, because I think the diamond stuff is just, I don't know, it's just interesting to me, um, how this stuff works, and I think it's a good, I don't know, microcosm of how the whole economic systems work and stuff like that. There's a lot to be learned from it, I guess, is my point, so um, anyway, we talk about that up front, then we get into the even heavier topics than blood diamonds, so, uh, you know, like I said, it's heavy, but it's good, It's, it's a good talk, it's always good to have Asia on the show. And um, I'm going to stop talking now so we can bring her in. We're going to be right back with Aja We opened to a hellscape. A city,
1: New York, in ruins. Rubble. Newspapers blowing in the wind. Dead bodies. And when the lamb opened one of the seals, I saw a white horse, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. Close shot on one of the papers. Will Putin nuke us. And when he had opened the second seal, there went out another horse that was red. And there was given unto him a great sword. Cut to Moscow. Death and devastation. Nothing survives. Not a living thing. And when he opened the third seal, I beheld a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. Now in Washington, complete annihilation. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I saw a pale horse. And his name that sat on him was Death. And hell followed with him. Slowly, we zoom in on a pile of debris. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. We hear the sound of clawing, scraping. A manhole cover opens. Out pops a man in a black robe. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal. And lo, there was a great earthquake. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became as blood. His face is out of focus as we watch him climb out. In his hand are some documents. And when he had opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Close shot on his face. The last human being alive on Earth. It's Merrick Garland. And he is holding the last document to be unsealed. An indictment. I'm ready, he says. I'm ready to indict Donald Trump. This fall, Dilatory Pictures presents N Times Attorney General. Rated R.
2: Asia Raiden, welcome back to Prevail. Thank you. So you lost an award to Obama? I did, that bastard. He has all the awards and he needed one more. So what is this? This is the narration of the, of the book?
0: Yeah, they're called Audis. They're like, um,
2: Belly they're like the
0: awards they give out for uh, audibles and, you know, audiobooks. And yeah. he and I and Katie Couric and Richard Marks, were up for best narrator by author.
2: That's such a crazy collection of people. Isn't that okay. a weird collection? Yeah. yeah. I
0: was actually feeling pretty confident about beating the other two. But then I was like, mm, they're just going to give it to Obama.
2: They're going to give it to Obama, And yeah. I
0: thought, well, it'll be fun to lose to Obama. And I was wrong. It wasn't fun. I cried.
2: <laughs> I'm sorry. And then I demanded a
0: cigarette. And then I demanded an award. And then my older sister was like, this is why no one takes you seriously.
2: So this is this is for people that don't know, this is, this is the audio book of The Truth About Lies, which is your book that we talked about last time you were on the show, which talks about lying and liars and and stuff like that. And I remember you telling me that your writing process is that you talk into your phone and then write that way anyway. So I'm sure the audio book is almost like the original of the you know it's not like me trying to put together an audiobook where i'm mispronouncing the russian names and stuff like that like it's it, it, it's almost the original source so
0: you got to mispronounce the russian names or people think you're a secret russian spy i know like tucker carlson man do those names just roll off his tongue but he can't say kamala <laughs> and um, yeah it was a little like that because i do i i talk into my phone and then i transcribe i email it to myself and cut and paste it's
2: very professional good. that's good. I, I i couldn't do that i i can type faster than i can think but i can talk slower than i think so it wouldn't work for me that way but it's fascinating the, the way people have their i can
0: talk faster than i think which gets me in trouble a
2: lot. <laughs> okay so the second thing you have there's a documentary called nothing lasts forever which oh, yeah
0: it came out yesterday It's it came, came out southwest
2: yeah we're we're um We're recording this on Sunday, March thirteenth. By the way, so in case we mention something, the world could be, you know, uh, a nuclear hellscape by the time this airs. Hopefully not, but um, you know, just in case. So, well, that uh, would
0: really, really mess up my plans for my documentary. So,
2: let's hope it would mess up a lot of things. So, okay, so this is a documentary about diamonds. Hence, nothing less. Yeah. So, tell tell us how how did you get involved with this?
0: Well, I wrote a book before The Truth About Lies called Stoned, which everyone assumes is about drugs or maybe my young adulthood in Hollywood, but actually is about behavioral economics and jewels. Um, And one chapter is about the invention of the engagement ring and how basically no one had them until World War, just after World War II. And De Beers having obtained a monopoly on all of the diamond mines in the world, was not allowed to do business in the U.S. because we still cared about antitrust laws at that point. But all of the money after World War II had shifted to the U.S. There were no more Romanovs to sell tiaras to, no more aristocratic families in England. They'd lost their money. So they tried to figure out how to sell diamonds to Americans. But because of the GI Bill and the New Deal, it was all the money, but it was very diffuse. Everybody just had like a little bit. So they invented a product and the product was the engagement ring. It held a small diamond and they still weren't allowed to do business here, but it didn't matter because anytime you bought a diamond, it was theirs. And they hired an advertising company to convince people that you're not married if you don't have a diamond engagement ring and that this is a real thing. And it's been true forever. And they sort of pioneered product placement and, and marketing research and they just, they made it up. And (laughs) It worked so well, no one remembers it, that the diamond ring, the diamond engagement ring is about as old as the microwave oven. And it's, it's yeah. not this old tradition. And what's amazing about it that I revisited in my new book, The Truth About Lies is that it's such an effective long con that even when you show it to people, they still don't care and they still want a diamond. They still feel the same way about diamonds. So that's worked really well for De Beers for a long time. And this first book I wrote um, was very widely read. And the director of this documentary was working on a story about synthetic diamonds. Mm -hmm. And he reached out to me and wanted to talk. And I was like, boy, would I love to talk to somebody about synthetic diamonds? (laughs) Because, in fact, he he felt that in working on this documentary he had uncovered a big secret about synthetic diamonds being mixed in with natural diamonds when they're cut deliberately they're they're contaminating the supply and you can't tell them apart right and the first thing I said to him was everybody knows and nobody cares in in regard to the jewelry industry and the diamond industry everybody knows about it it's been going on for a long time and it's It's worse than you think. I mean, if you care whether you have a synthetic diamond or not, in Surat, which is the city in India where they do all the diamond cutting. I mean, you imagine that happens in fancy offices in Antwerp, but it doesn't. It happens in something more like sweatshops in India. Um, They take huge amounts of synthetic diamonds that are produced in China, and China's been insisting for a long time, they only produce small brown industrial diamonds. Turns out that's not true. No way. no way. No yeah, way. Yeah. yeah, no way. They were lying. And they've been making tons of white gem quality diamonds for who knows how long. And then they sell them to the diamond cutters. And the diamond cutters cut them like diamonds and mix them in with the regular diamonds.
2: And there's really no way to tell them apart? Like, even the best gemologist on the planet Earth can't tell them apart?
0: Well, no. Not without very expensive, specialized machinery. Okay. And... Um, you can't do that to every diamond that goes through your hands and even if you could i don't want to ruin the ending for anybody who's going to see it but even if you could spoiler um the people who own that machinery that's the same people who don't want people to question whether or not they might have a synthetic diamond uh, so they are in no way incentivized to make that technology affordable or put it in the hands of lots of people and these are companies that sell natural diamonds like De Beers, for instance. Okay. And um, you know, they the, the part of the story that really kills me is there's this big dust up between natural diamonds and synthetic diamonds. And people who have a stake in natural diamonds insist that it's destroying the psychology of diamonds if you can just manufacture them and they're fake and they're garbage and you don't want them. And the people who seem to have a controlling interest in synthetic diamonds insist they're more ecologically friendly, they're definitely conflict-free, they're exactly the same thing. To be clear, these aren't fake diamonds, these are just lab-grown diamonds. It's like, it, it's like um, agriculture, you know, instead yeah. of foraging for wild food, you planted it and you grew it. The thing is <laughs> those independent synthetic diamond producers needed a lot of money and guess who paid for it? the same people who own the natural diamonds. De Beers has one of the largest synthetic diamond producers in the world, Element Six, and the RDIF, which I'm sure you're familiar with, it's uh, basically a, a giant Russian state investment fund.
2: Right, sure.
0: Put up a significant amount of the capital for Diamond Foundry, which is the big one here in the US. it's the one Leonardo DiCaprio is an investor in in the face of, and they don't discuss the fact that they took all of that money from the same people who own Alrosa, the biggest diamond mine in the world. So it's a shell game. They're acting like they're fighting with each other, but they're the same people. And they've started sort of a narrative war with themselves. To what end is interesting, but I'm, I've now given away weight. I remember Mad, Mad, documentary.
2: Mad Magazine had a thing back in like when I was like in elementary school um, about how like the Cola Wars of Coke versus Pepsi were all manufactured. Mm-hmm. And it was designed to just knock like RC Cola out of business so that you know, at the end of the day, there are only be two companies, so it's sort of sneaky, brilliant, and it, and it does break everybody's brain. And I guess at the end of the day, who who cares? But um, I'm thinking about movies and and diamonds and how they appear in pop culture, and it's just it's so there. I mean, in everything, you know. From it,
0: well, it was deliberate. It was it was yeah. the original advertising campaign, mm-hmm. and all others that came after it copied it.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, from, from Diamonds Are Forever, which is the you know, the Ian Fleming novel and a very, very good and underrated uh, Sean Connery Bond film. A very fun one. I watched it fairly recently for like the millionth time, but I hadn't watched in a while and it t- t- holds up, it's good. Um, and that's all about, you know, smuggling diamonds here and there. Yeah. Um,
0: well, that's, that's an important element of the. I mean, there are so many reasons when you say, and ultimately who cares? I agree with you as someone in the jewelry industry, a diamond is a diamond. And, and I actually think they got me on camera in the film saying they're all exactly the same and none of them are really worth anything. It's just you've been duped. But, you know, so I have no beef with synthetic diamonds as a jeweler. But what it is, is you can't tell them apart and you can't tell if they're real and they're all identical and they're very small and that makes them a perfect perfect vehicle for smuggling for money laundering right. for all sorts of things because once they've traded hands you really don't know i mean oh god the kimberley process kills me everybody's worried about blood diamonds because they saw a movie what is leonardo, leonardo told him- dicaprio yes it was sure. right around the same time he invested in diamond foundry isn't that interesting interesting almost yeah. market manipulation But what if I told you the whole concept of blood diamonds was marketing? It was a marketing campaign, not to make you stop buying diamonds, but to make you stop worrying about where your diamond came from. Because at the time there was a civil war in Sierra Leone, which is one of a million places diamonds come from. And a blood diamond is technically just a diamond that was bought by you from a middleman and... To be clear, there are about a dozen little men in between the mine and the person. And originally when it was taken out of the mine, it was sold and the money from the first sale may have in some way funded this horrific civil war in which children were having arms cut off and it really was terrible. And they started calling them blood diamonds and they told every, it's the same thing. They yeah. told everybody to be worried about it. And then they said, oh, but don't worry we have this UN approved Kimberly process and the Kimberly process is where we trace your diamond and we make sure that that diamond is Kimberly approved and that money didn't go to warlords in Sierra Leone. Well, I have a couple problems with that. First of all, it's bullshit. No, they don't. They have no idea where your diamond's from for the most part. Yeah. And I mean, unless you have one of those diamonds you see sometimes on the internet, like the star of Lesotho, it's like 150 carats in a very unusual color. No, no one knows where your 1.5 carat white diamond came from. They really don't, and they yeah. don't care. So it's, it's a lie. And also, that civil war in Sierra Leone has been over for a while, but what about all the diamonds that come from El Rosa? That's this gigantic mine in Russia that produces a significant percentage of the annual diamond output. All of that, I mean... Putin owns a significant stake in that mine. Yeah, personally, are those not blood diamonds? When you go buy a diamond, there's a 50 50 chance it came from Russia. And you just gave money to Putin's regime. And I'm pretty sure that constitutes a blood diamond. And I mean, there are diamonds that come from all over where they're funding people who are doing terrible things. But we only refer to the ones from conflict zones in Africa in a civil war as blood diamonds because it was a marketing technique
1: yeah.
2: to make
0: you feel good about what you were buying.
2: I wonder if, and maybe you, you said this last time or wrote about it in the book, I can't remember, if if the fact that they're, they are blood diamonds does add some sort of value to the way people perceive it. Like, do you know the Lily Allen yeah. song? There's a Lily Allen song called The Fear, and it starts off, uh, I want to be rich and I want lots of money. I don't care about clever. I don't care about funny. I want lots of clothes and fuckloads of diamonds. I heard people died when they're trying to find them. And that's it. Yeah, that's, that's the hey, whole ethos I do remember right that song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, maybe it adds a certain mystique to it. Like this wasn't cooked in the lab, That somebody had to suffer for this You know, for this I thing. I forgot
0: that I said that. Yeah, I did say that. Yeah, I said that it, it would be nice to think that humans want something clean. But the truth is, the ugly truth is that we don't. We want something that somebody got killed trying to get. We want something that other people can't have. I mean, diamonds are the ultimate positional good. It's an economic term that refers to a, a good that has no intrinsic value. Its value is set according to comparisons to others of its kind within a group. So, Is my diamond a good diamond? I don't know. I have to check with the woman sitting next to me and look at hers. Mm. Mine's better than hers, then it's a good one. And that makes hers a bad one. But if we're alone in two separate rooms, there really is no intrinsic value. There's no way to say, is this a good one or a bad one? How much is it worth?
2: Do diamonds have, because in my, and I think we talked about this before, but I'm going to ask again anyway. In my mind, diamonds are supposed to be like the hardest substance on earth and they're used for laser beams and to cut through glass and stuff like that. That's rubies. Okay, so that's Laser beams too. are rubies. Okay. Um, that's why they're red. Okay. <laughs> that that, yeah. that makes Okay, um, that makes sense. So basically everything we know about diamonds is pretty much just a load of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah,
0: it's myth-making. And yeah. they were so good at it that they turned, it's one of the, Rare documentable cases of people selling a lie, basically a long con, mm-hmm. so effectively over such a long period of time that in a really messed up way, that I explain in The Truth About Lies, it turns into truth. Yeah. So yeah. they stated that diamonds were rare. That was never true. There are tons of them. So they lied about it and they hoarded them and they only sell a few every year. Well, their first lie is diamonds are rare. And then they say diamonds are terribly valuable because they're rare. And you go, well, I guess if they're rare, yes, they are terribly valuable. And then they say, well, so you have to pay this much money to have one. And you do. And when you pay that money, it makes the, fir- the second lie true. They are really valuable. If people are going to pay tens of thousands of dollars for them based on the first lie that they're really, really rare and you really want one. So it's just like a series of layering of lies where each lie confirms the previous lie until they've basically just redeemed it as truth.
2: Yeah. So the lies become reality.
0: Diamonds are really rare. They're really expensive, and you really want one.
2: I think that if there if there is um, a simulation that we're living in, I think the diamond will be able to cut through the, the threat, the, the fabric between the simulation and reality. So maybe that's why the diamonds are valuable. Um, you yeah. tweeted a little while ago something about, and I I, I didn't write it down, um, when they were first putting the sanctions on Russia and Putin's regime in Russia, um, mm. one of the stories that percolated was, oh, luxury goods are accepted, uh, are mm. exempted from, from the sanctions. And people were talking about Gucci handbags and shit like that. And you said, no, it's the diamonds. That's why.
0: Yeah. Yeah, why, why would you mix diamonds, which are basically an economic good, they're like gold bars, yeah. in with Gucci loafers and Burberry handbags, that doesn't make sense, unless, you know, you're hiding them, you're hiding the fact that what you're actually exempting are sanctions on not just an industry that's worth gazillions of dollars, but uh, like crypto, a viable way for people to still have and launder and use money when they're supposed to be under sanction.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's clever. I mean, most of the movies that I can think of that have diamonds in them are all movies about how they're smuggling the diamonds out because diamonds have money. Like, you know, lots and lots of things. From Marathon Man to, uh, yeah.
0: So we think we're cutting off Money to Russia, even to the extent that we've stopped buying their oil. Oh my God, how when do Americans stop buying oil? That's a big deal. We think we're really strangling this hydra. Except they've got this gigantic mine, El Rosa, that puts out like half the diamonds in the world annually. It's it's the old De Beer's model of, oh, we can't do business here. Well, that's okay, because anytime you buy a diamond, you bought it from us anyway. They're just going to sell those diamonds, and instead of sending the nicer ones to Antwerp, they'll just send them all to India to be cut. And then India will continue to distribute them to the rest of us. And the next time you buy a diamond, you didn't violate those sanctions, but you did buy something from Russia.
2: Interesting. It's it's interesting that people don't know this, that, that so many diamonds come from Russia. Because I think yeah. maybe because well, not, De Beers is exactly. from South Africa and well, that too, I mean.
0: It's all myth-making. A lot of diamonds come from Canada.
2: No, Canada? Yes.
0: They come from everywhere. They're very common.
2: Are there diamonds in the United States? Yes. Where?
0: I think it's Utah. I mean, they're they're not huge deposits, but
2: but they do exist. I mean,
0: they're not huge deposits is a relative term. It costs so much to create an open pit diamond mine yeah. that there have to be just buckets of them down there to make it worthwhile. Okay. But yeah, there're diamond there're diamond mines all over the U.S. Montana, okay, Badlands.
2: Okay. Wow. Who knew? This is all interesting. And, um, yeah, I just, it occurs to me that Robert Hansen, the, uh, the FBI double agent guy who was he had in some way in charge of counterintelligence who got arrested for, you know, espionage with, with Russia. Um, like you do. he had diamonds. I mean, they paid him in diamonds. That so was did Epstein. It. Yeah. yeah. Yep.
0: Epstein had a safe full of diamonds.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: a great way to pay someone, especially before Bitcoin. Um, if you're doing something illicit yeah. because at any time you can take those diamonds and turn them into scabs of money in any country right. in any currency and no one can look at that diamond and go hey now who paid you and what they pay you for they can wonder and you should but the same way the kimberly process is kind of bullshit because you can't really trace them you can't really tell where those diamonds came from
2: yeah I mean it's like gold in that respect. Gold you could always mm-hmm. just melt down into in, in, and and re-reform it, but gold is much heavier and harder to transport heavier, and more not obvious. as valuable, yeah. yeah. All all of those things. Um okay, let's let's take a little break now and we'll be right back with Asia Raiden. So I get this package in the mail, totally unexpected, and I open it up and it, it's a box and it contains twelve little bottles of something called Magic Mind. I have no idea what this is. I assume my wife ordered it. She did not. And then I realized, oh, this is a sample. These guys might be sponsoring the podcast. That's right, I remember now. So I start taking this stuff. So I start taking this stuff, and it was really well-timed because this was one of the most stressful weeks of my life. Boy, did it help me. So much so that when the first box ran out, I immediately bought more. It ran out, by the way, because my wife saw the magic mine. It was like, I want some magic mine. And then she started taking the magic mine, and now we need to have twice as many Magic Minds. Anyway, I am psyched to be teaming up with Magic Mind and they are offering you, my listeners, 20% off your order when you go to magicmind.co slash prevail and use promo code prevail at checkout. So what I do now, I've established a routine. I take it every morning, kind of instead of the second cup of coffee. So like maybe 9, 30, 10 o'clock in the morning. And I know it's hard to quantify stuff like this and you get the supplement, you know, is it really working? But Magic Mind really does make me more productive. I just... I don't know, I just, I'm just, i just more ready to get stuff done. I used to have these days where I would just, I just was not ready to bring it. I would just sit at my desk and stare out the window and there's a to-do list there and I, there's just no way anything was gonna get done. I, just, I, I really don't have days like that since taking the magic mind. Why this is, I don't know, I'm not 100% sure how it works. I know it has these 12 functional ingredients, including matcha, nootropics that make you focus and adaptogens that help you fight off stress. Nootropic, by the way, it's N-O-O-Tropic. It's a fancy word for a substance that enhances cognition and memory. Magic Mind was featured in Forbes and was called Silicon Valley's New Morning Elixir. The founder, James Bashara, became the de facto nootropics guy in Silicon Valley even before he started Magic Mind. And if you're like me, you're trying to keep all the Trump crimes straight, and tell Sergey Lavrov from Sergei Peskov from Sergey Kislyak, and you want to get into that kind of creative flow state, I would definitely recommend you give Magic Mind a try. You've got nothing to lose. With their money-back guarantee, any first purchase will be refunded. No questions asked if it does not meet your expectations. Go to magicmind.co slash prevail and use promo code prevail at checkout for 20% off. Magic Mind, world's first productivity drink. Okay, we're back with Asia Raiden. We're talking about diamonds. Um, you mentioned your book, um, Stoned, which I have here. Um, the subtitle is Jewelry, Obsession, and How Desire Shapes the World. And I just I, I know I shouted it out before, but it's a really good book for anybody Thank listening you. that that's uh, you know that wants to pick that up. Um, okay, so you mentioned Bitcoin, and I, I really like your take on this because I when I started the podcast, you know, about a year ago, I didn't really know very much at all about Bitcoin. So anybody that came on that, had some sort of opinion about it, I asked just to try to figure out what was happening, Um, you know, pro and con, uh, (laughs) con, double meaning there. So, (laughs) yeah, Um, but it seems to me that uh, you, what you wrote in the book about it makes perfect sense to me, which is that it can't be a currency, because it's not designed to be spent, it's something that's designed to be hoarded, right, like I um, when I had uh, I had Scaramucci on my show, like I, you know, almost a year ago. Um, great guy, really good conversation, and he's a big Bitcoin guy. So after talking to him, I I read uh, a couple of books about it, short books that you know just to crystallize my understanding of it, and I bought five hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin, which I think today is worth like three hundred and seventy five dollars. So I was gonna say
0: congratulations on not having spent more.
2: Yeah. Um, no, just just to see what would happen almost as a curiosity. And it's like, I'm never going to spend it because if I if I take it out now, I've obviously lost money. So I'm not going to do that. If it suddenly goes up to $1,000, I'm not going to take it out because what if it goes up more, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, maybe there's probably some point at which you would try to, you know, pull up. But like, I don't think that it's ever going to spike enough that I, it would ever get to that point because everybody... You know, and their grandmother is is investing in it because um, a thousand commercials on the Super Bowl told them to do it, and Jesus, that it was okay. Those were so fucked up. It's crazy, right? Uh, it, it's really. I mean, between the the online sports book and the and the crypto, it's really it's a whole yeah. But big... it
0: makes sense that they put them together. It's all mob, mob, mob.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So wh- what's your take on, on crypto now? I mean, I know you wrote about it in the book, but has anything changed with the, the d- various permutations of Yeah, of it's things? much worse
0: than I thought it was. And I thought it was bad. Okay. When I, when I wrote that, in, and this is not in Stoned, obviously, because it doesn't relate. It's in The Truth About Lies. I wrote about different kinds of lies, and each chapter was about a different kind of con. And in the chapter on pyramid schemes... I was like, now let's talk about Bitcoin, because Bitcoin's a big, big pyramid scheme. There are like 12 people approximately who own like 90% of the Bitcoin on Earth. Yeah. And it's only worth anything because you bought $500 worth. That's right. That's how a pyramid scheme works. Everybody at the bottom keeps throwing their money onto the pyre and it trickles upward to the people at the top to inflate the value of what they have. So Bitcoin is absolutely, absolutely a giant pyramid scheme. It's Ponzi scheme. That's that's it. That's what I wrote, I don't know, a year or two ago, two years ago at least, when I was writing that. But it's gotten so much worse because It's the biggest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. It's a multinational global pyramid scheme that involves so many people and so much money that it risks destabilizing the dollar, which sounds like a very nerdy concern when somebody goes, oh, it's gonna destabilize the dollar. And you think, why do I care? What does that mean? Okay, I'll, I'll use Bitcoin, which you can't because you're, you, don't use, you don't spend it. It's speculation. You're, you're gambling and you, it's meant to be hoarded. But even if you could spend it, as Americans, we don't want to destabilize the dollar. That's how you end up Venezuela. Yeah. And there are also national security implications. I mean, look at what we just did. This is an interesting period in history that people are gonna study like dropping a nuclear bomb. This is the first time we and I hate the way people use the term cancel, but it's the first time we canceled another country. Yeah. Just via exclusion from the dollar. We're like it's, it's economic
2: our... warfare. It's we it's it's an economic act yeah. of war, is what it is. Yeah. I, people have no fucking idea how what this means. Uh, it, yeah. It's gonna be yeah. brutal. That country's yeah. gonna be
0: North Korea by June. Yeah. And it's because we said you can't touch our dollars. Mm-hmm. And we only have the power to do that because the dollar is like the global standard. And if it's not anymore, well, who would volunteer for that? And all those people buying Bitcoin, watching the Super Bowl, don't understand they're helping destabilize and devalue the dollar and make it not the global reserve currency. And then we can't look at rogue terrorists regimes, North Korea or Russia or whatever, and go, you can't use our money and back to the Middle Ages with you.
2: I mean, the other thing about Bitcoin that, that, that's puzzling to me, and you know, the, for people that don't, haven't read these books or don't understand it, it's basically there are a finite number of Bitcoin in mm-hmm. the world, and not all of them are in existence yet. So you mine them, which, which takes an enormous amount of energy, because it is pegged to something. It's pegged to the price of energy. So, the Mm -hmm. cost of the fuel or the energy involved with the the, the, to generate the electricity to grind these algorithms or whatever the hell it is on the computers to maybe hopefully mint this coin because the computers are trying to solve this code and the code gives them the coin, something like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So, yeah, basically, nerds doing math on computers. Yeah. Yeah. And if they do enough math, it (laughs) results in a Bitcoin.
2: Yeah. And which is worth you know $35,000 or something right now or whatever, 40, mm-hmm. whatever it is. So it's not an insignificant amount of money if you happen to get one, but what are you going to do with that? Like, you know, what if there's no electricity tomorrow? I'm going to go to the, to the dollar, to the store, to the corner store and get a cup of coffee with what? With Your my Bitcoin? Bitcoin? What do, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to write an IOU, you know, it's going to, there's going to be paper script that develops based on the Bitcoin, which is all that dollars are anyway. So it's, in, in, in a sense, So if, you
0: can see how it's an attempt to destabilize the dollar. Yes.
2: It's so dependent on, on technology that if something happens with the technology, everything is fucked. Um, mm-hmm. you know. And
0: if something happens with uh, global energy prices in a dramatic fashion,
1: mm-hmm. and yeah, it's why true. it has
0: these wild swings. And it's not a coincidence that people who are heavily invested in oil are also big proponents of Bitcoin. As state
1: actors,
2: well, they just want to—they just want the uh, the earth to be destroyed sooner rather than later. I mean, because both of those two things are, um, you know, accelerating global warming and climate change and all that, all that stuff. I mean, Ru- Russia wants—I mean, Putin—they want global warming because then they can, well, yeah. they can go into I mean, the Arctic and get Russia. more oil. You know, I mean, that's just...
0: well, no, <laughs> it's not just about oil. It's um, so say twenty-five years from now. This continues unabated. The east coast will be underwater. The west coast will be underwater. Uh, Further inland, the the whole southern half of the east coast will be a big, fetid, mosquito-infested, disease-ridden swamp. Uh, The plains states will have dried up and blown away from the heat and the lack of rain. And the entire not West Coast, because it'll be underwater from rising sea levels, but further inland, what's left of it will be like the Badlands. It'll be really uninhabitable. So where's the breadbasket of the world now? If it's not Iowa, it might be Mongolia. Yeah, That's what they're thinking. They're thinking it'll be warm, it'll be balmy, people can vacation in Siberia, and they will produce all of the food, and basically, they get to be America, if it gets hot enough. Mm. And that's psychotic and it sounds like the plot of a really bad movie, but there are people whose intentions are thus: Just, you know, let it, let's let it go. Let's let it get really hot. That'll work for us.
2: Yeah. Uh, and it makes, I mean, it makes sense, you know, um, or they just don't think about it at all. They just only give a shit about themselves in the present. I think that's part of it too. Yeah. It's, I think it's it
0: was for a long time, the future and the present caught up with each other and, uh, when I was little, everybody talked about global warming and how it would be terrible in the future. And now there are tornadoes that destroy whole cities. And there are famines because it doesn't rain for two years in a country. And it, it is terrible right now, even if you only care about yourself.
2: And some of the some of the temperatures are too hot to live. Yeah. You know, when it gets to be 120, you know, degrees in place for a certain length of time, it's you know, good luck with that because it's bad.
0: Mm-hmm. Bad bad and bad. and everybody's industry is changing you know french wine has grown in england now
2: no i did not know you I mean, of it i knew that the french wine is all you know after they had that whatever the the, the pest pestilence that killed all the all the mm-hmm. grape things that they got it all from california in like the 1800s anyway so french wine is really from cal all of it is from california now they and can't now-
0: grow it in france anymore so uh tattinger i'm saying that wrong tattinger i don't know Not a big drinker. They've bought up huge swaths of Kent and turned them into into vineyards. So French wine, most of it, comes from England. And they're having trouble growing tulips in Holland now because the weather isn't right. They're going to have to grow them in Norway. And Kentucky bourbon is now possibly going to have to be Minnesota bourbon.
2: Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. This stuff, a lot of this stuff is all fleeting anyway, but these are these are scary things. I mean you associate these, you know, there has been wine grown in France and in Italy, you know, since the the days of the Romans Mm -hmm. and probably well before that. So that's an awful lot of change in a very short period of time. Scary, scary stuff. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: So yeah. (laughs) I don't know. So what do you think is going to happen with this Bitcoin thing? You think it's going to like all Ponzi schemes just explode?
1: Eventually, yes.
2: Are the Winklevoss twins going to be okay?
0: I don't care. Um, (laughs) um, uh, Yeah, because they are among the huge, huge Bitcoin holders. Mm -hmm. And and Poor Elon Musk. Every time he needs more cash, he stokes his minions on the internet to go crazy about this Bitcoin or this crypto or that. Um, Are they going to be okay? Yes, the people at the top of the pyramid are already they're always okay because they already got all your money. People at the bottom of the pyramid who are not. And unfortunately this pyramid is so big it could wipe out whole economies. And um, that will probably happen. Uh, It'll be much worse than the housing bubble. And there are people uh, other than me, people whose job it is to care about these things. And some of them have already started trying to gradually let the air out of that balloon so it doesn't burst by not sanctioning but essentially regulating how you can buy it how you can use it i think they're trying to slow walk it backwards so it doesn't just go boom because when it does just it's going to be economic devastation across numerous countries
2: that's maybe that's the only thing that that's hopeful about it is that it won't just be in one place and it maybe it will be diffuse enough that it won't fuck up everything too badly Nope. Nope.
0: That's not how that works. (laughs) Remember the global financial meltdown?
2: I see. The reason it was a
0: meltdown was because it was everywhere. Yeah. All the banks had been trading money and trading mortgage-backed securities and bundled. I mean, people in China, investors in China were buying interest in you paying your mortgage here in America, just you, Greg. Yeah. It was a disaster because it was so many tentacles in so many countries it's never better when it's more places. Like World War One, all of those interlocking <laughs> treaties, and Serbian dude shoots somebody, and we're off to the races, and the whole world's at war. This will not be better because it's everywhere. Okay, so
2: okay, so let's let let's put a little let's put a little pin in that you've you've said now compared that the um, the coming Bitcoin meltdown is World War One basically. Okay, good. No, more but- like a
0: global financial meltdown <laughs> in two thousand eight.
2: So, and sometimes things do 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 fan out. I mean, the great depression started in the United States, you know, there was things happening in Germany and stuff, you know, between the war, but the depression started in the United States and we mm-hmm. exported it to the world. So good for us. Um, you're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we uh,
0: exported our poor financial sense to everybody. Yeah. We're Americans and we like to gamble Buy
2: land in Florida, ask Matt Damon. <laughs> um, The Matt Damon ad is just crazy. I mean, it's it's so bad. I can't believe him.
0: Oh man. I already have like blood sugar and insulin problems. I don't need that kind of impetus to throw up. Just (laughs) no trigger warning, nothing. They throw it up on the screen and I'm like,
2: Fortune favors the bold.
0: Fortune favors friends of Harvey Weinstein, you jackass. (laughs)
2: Oh man! When I see the commercials, I'm like, "How much money do these people need? Like, is he really like hard up? Like, you know?"
0: Well, I don't know. I I know uh, Ben Affleck did an ad, and I know he has a gambling problem, so maybe he owes people money.
2: I mean, Ben Affleck did an ad for the gambling app, you know, which is hilarious. I'm not
0: taking your advice about gambling, Ben Affleck. Um, Haven't you been to rehab for it a few times? It is a shame. It's a good
2: ad though. Really but, is a good yeah, office.
0: like no, no shame to people who have gambling problems, especially if they you know go, go get treatment. But but then the the moral decay that would cause you to get paid to do an ad telling people to gamble that's shown to children during a sporting event is yeah. I mean he's either a sociopath or he owes somebody some money. That's what I don't I know.
2: Yeah, it's not it's not a good look. It's it, it's disappointing, and I feel like you know. Not, not to sound like Anthony Comstock or one of these, like you know, puritanical. Uh,
0: oh no, we're all for vice here.
2: Yeah, vice is is Doing fantastic, me. but I, I, I'm not a fan of of uh, of showing it to, to the kids on the thing. And there, there's something to be said for gambling being slightly hard to do. Um, you know, if yeah. it, if it adds, well, it's almost like with like gun- a blood
0: diamond, it does make it more fun, doesn't it? Yeah. If you think you're doing something illicit, not something advertised to children on Sunday.
2: Yeah, yeah. But I think that does make it
0: but just that's like important.
2: with guns, you know, let's, okay, like if I keep my gun in a safe in my mm-hmm. house, then at least I know that I have to go to the safe, open the safe up, get the gun, load it before I use it. Whereas if I just yeah. have it on me, you know.
0: And you post for Christmas pictures with your kids with their machine guns.
2: Or I'm just out, out and about and somebody cuts me off, you know. I might be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take oh God, this guy I out. Oh God, I never
0: own a gun for that reason. I have such bad road rage.
2: Well, there's reason for bad road rage. And the reason is bad drivers, you know.
0: I have road rage issues. I definitely should never have a weapon.
2: No, it's not good. You know, with the gambling, it should be like that. Like if I have to, okay, I have to be in Las Vegas now to gamble on sports events. Yeah. So I will fly there, I'll place bets. And that's going to be a thing that I have to do and plan for, mm-hmm. whereas I can't be, you know, drunk at eight o'clock at night being like, oh, let's, let's do the inline, you know, the, uh, the in-game betting on who wins the Knicks-Nets game today. You know, that's yeah. where people get in trouble. I think. But I it's think.
0: important, honestly, it's not just about people getting in trouble. It's important that it's being sold like this because half the time people don't know when they're being sold something. And the other half of the time they know they're being sold something and they might think about the thing, but they never ask why they're being sold something. Mm. Why yeah. are we being sold sports betting at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning? It, it does take some of the sexiness away from it. You're not at a speakeasy anymore. Yeah. You're, you're, you're gambling from your phone 24 hours a day. Boy, that's mundane. So what are they doing? Why are they showing this to children? I don't think they're trying to get children to gamble. But when you watch an ad for something in front of your child, you unconsciously, feel the Overton window shift. Yeah. And it's not a big deal anymore. Yeah, it's normalizing
2: no. it. There was no saying. sex
0: on on network TV when I was little and now there is. And it's been normalized and you sit there watching Bridgerton and your kid walks past and you're like it's just TV. But yeah, yeah they're normalizing gambling as part of your day-to-day economic existence. Now yeah. who would benefit from that? I know everyone's tired. Of hearing about organized crime, but, but that's who benefits from everyone gambling 24 hours a day.
2: Yeah. I mean, for lots of different reasons, not just the economic, but the, you know, owing people favors and all, all kinds of stuff. It, it's uh, yeah. And it's sad because, you know, people have, it's an addiction. It's a real bona fide addiction and it really ruins people's lives. And it's, it's very sad. And, um, it's exploitative, I feel, to, um, you know, to advertise in that, in that sense, in that way, in your face like that. You know? If you
0: can't advertise cigarettes to children, why can you advertise gambling?
2: Yeah, it, it makes no sense to me. Um, none at all. Uh, okay, the next topic I want to discuss with you, because we've, we've talked about this before offline, is fascism. This is all fun stuff we're talking about today. It's all this like, is, yeah, it's, it's just, all it's sunshine and roses. Yeah, yeah. And
0: let's talk about fascism and global financial <laughs> meltdowns.
2: So you said to me that the rise of anti-Semitism anywhere is always sort of augurs the rise of fascism. Yeah. And uh, why don't you talk about that a little bit? Because there's clearly there, there is a rise in that, in yeah. anti-Semitism in the United States right now. We've got literal Nazis in Florida right now you know, yeah. literally in, in uh, not regalia. Just in Florida. Yeah. People
0: like to think they're just in Florida, but I live in Beverly Hills. And one day we all woke up to these Nazi flyers slapped to our doors with swastikas and, and Jewish stars and pentagrams that said every part of the COVID conspiracy was from Jews. And it was like, oh my God, is this the middle ages? We're getting blamed for a plague now. And it listed everybody at the CDC and their name and said Jew. And it was just, it was alarming to say the least. and. I mean, there were enough of them that, that it was covered by the news that they did this and yeah. all over Beverly Hills. And then they did it again a few months later. And I think they did it in Huntington Beach at one point. And so you can actually Google it and you can see a picture of one of those flyers. What it is, is not even unique to the US. There is just this seething, growing, anti-Semitic sentiment everywhere which is terrifying because historically, there's always like a low level simmer of anti-Semitism that you may or may not be aware of if you're not Jewish. If you are, you're aware of it, but it's, you know, as long as as they keep it at like a a polite low simmer, we don't make a big deal out of it because we get in trouble when we make a big deal out of anything. And then suddenly it'll boil over somewhere and everybody has to run away, pogroms in Russia, inquisitions in Spain, holocausts in Germany, you know the drill. The thing is, every time that happens, sort of the way, you know how right before it starts to rain, it gets really windy out of nowhere? Yeah. And then you're like, oh shit, it's gonna rain. The wind didn't cause the rain. It was just a really good predictor that that was about to happen. And these big blowups in anti-Semitism, were all of a sudden out of nowhere, there are real Nazis, you know, slapping flyers on my door or waving banners or marching in Charlottesville or whatever. People who 10 years ago either kept their thoughts to themselves or didn't even think they were anti-Semites. When that happens, it it's like wind before rain. It's anti-Semitism before fascism. It always happens. They always correlate. And the anti-Semitism doesn't cause the fascism. It just predicts it. Yeah. Because... Well, for a few reasons, but, you know, one of them is that people don't realize they are being whipped up into a frenzy by individuals who have a stake in democracy going away in any given place in any given time or whatever system of government they have. And part of it is, I, I think, I think the way I said it to you was just that we're it's, it doesn't really even have anything to do with us. It's not even about Jewish people. It's just that we're the people everybody can get behind, getting against. <laughs> we're the one group you can pretty much sell anybody on. You don't like them, right? Do you think they caused COVID? Like, and um, and we live everywhere, so it works. even yeah, I think country. that's the. I
2: think that's that's more the key. I was thinking about it, um, you know, knowing we were going to talk about it, and it's like th- these fascists. Uh, governments and these movements rise up and one of the first things they do is blame someone for supposed grievances and the Mm -hmm. person has to be something that someone, uh, some group that's inauthentically part of the larger group. Oh, yeah. Yeah, We're
0: historically suspicious because we're stateless. So, you know, that's a big part of anti-Semitism is questioning your alliance to the country you live in. People are like, you're not really German. You're not really French. It's like, well, okay, but where am I from? I was born here. I'm American. Yeah. And the other part of it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, you know, we live everywhere. And that's also uh, I think it's an important component of genuine anti-Semitism, not the kind you whip people into a frenzy over, and then they later go, why did I do what what happened? You know, like after World War II. Um But genuine anti-Semitism, I think a lot of it is, is just, it has nothing to do with us, and it has nothing to do with people who don't like us. It's just that nobody likes, and nobody wants to admit this, kind of like they want a blood diamond. Nobody likes foreigners. They freak out about it. And we're just the people who have already met everyone. We've lived in every country. We've settled in every country for thousands of years. So this sort of universal resentment or distrust is not about us or other people. It's just, we've met you, so you've had the opportunity to dislike us. Yeah. Whereas it's not like, you know, there, are, there are, it's not like there are large Yazidi communities in Canada or, or South Africa. It's just being from somewhere else and then living in a country, however long you live there, it doesn't matter. You're a small minority group of, of perceived foreigners. And so it's very easy when people are already under stress to convince them that these people are the source of their problem and fascists do that they whip people into a frenzy about suspicious foreigners and it's almost always us um trump tried to do it with caravans of people coming yeah. from mexico but it didn't didn't really work that well
1: yeah
0: and uh it tells you that they're active, basically. It's like, you know, you get a fever and you're like, oh, I must've been exposed to a germ that's active now. Mm-hmm. They're active, they're freaking people out, they're, they're holding Nazi rallies. And it's scary to me because it's not just Florida, it's not just Beverly Hills, it's everywhere, which yeah. means the entire world is teetering on the brink of fascist government overthrows.
2: Do you think, I mean, what do you think is gonna happen? Um... I, I hate to ask predict predict the future questions for obvious area reasons. area woman
0: Baba Yaga. How yeah. is this going to end?
2: <laughs> but I feel like you know we're we're in such an inflection point right now because again it, it's it's Sunday March thirteenth. Who knows what's going to happen? Even by the time this airs, whether it's Friday or next Friday or whatever, um, in Russia and with Putin and all that stuff. But I feel like I think he's toast. Well he's toast, but when and his own at, security services are gonna take him out. At, at what point? Um I'm I'm so the question there. is at
0: what point will we find out about it? Because I think he'll be dead for a while before anybody tells us.
2: Mm, maybe he's dead now. Ooh, I like He might I like, be.
0: Have you seen him lately? I haven't.
2: Yeah, we he came to I saw him at uh at Whole Foods when I went shopping oh. for him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, but, be a New Yorker. The um <laughs> <laughs> there's uh it's an inflection point. I, I I'm like, I don't even know what to say now. No, I feel <laughs> like the, it is like it's, it's like one of these times when there's we're going to do battle between good and evil. And I feel like the bad guys yeah. have been winning. The bad guys have been almost like in volleyball. They, they've held serve or in tennis, right? They've held serve for the last five years, certainly, you know, the whole time of Trump. And then you know, I've also been first... playing
0: tennis without us for 20 years because they convinced us the Cold War was over and we were like, great, yeah. we're all friends. You want a Big Mac? And they were like, yeah, sure. Yeah. And meanwhile, they were buying controlling interests in technology companies and like Facebook and and honing cyber warfare. And we the whole time we were like, isn't it great the way history's over? And, you know, I, I think uh, I think the biggest victory that. Putin has had or will ever have when the Kremlin in general was convincing us we weren't at war for 20 years.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, they 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 did a masterful job. I mean, there's no question about it. Um but like you said, you know, we haven't even been playing the game and they've been like quietly acing us on every serve, but mm-hmm. now I feel like we're finally getting the fucking racket, right? And mm-hmm. and Biden is like, "Okay, here we go." And I don't know what's going to happen because we're a little bit rusty with this stuff. But so far, I, I haven't even said anything on. I know people get really emotional about it. Obviously, what's happening in Ukraine is horrible. And I don't want to see anyone die that shouldn't die. But I also, I, it's so complicated because the guy Putin is obviously either insane or, uh, you know, he's backed into a corner and God yeah. knows what he will do. And there really is. I don't think he will use nuclear weapons, even if he wanted to. I don't think that uh, there's
0: some debate about whether he has them,
2: that the people there would allow it you know? yeah, or if they work or any of that stuff. Exactly. But They've been selling nuclear to,
0: fuel for decades.
2: There's definitely a way to do this while killing the fewest amount of people. Right. And and Biden and his diplomatic team and, and Kamala Harris and everybody else, I think have handled this really, really well so far, like really well. Like, mm-hmm. So I'm reluctant to even criticize anything at this point. Like if, I, if Biden is saying X, then he's got a good reason to say it and that maybe we should just trust that he's going to do the right thing here. Um, so far, I think he's earned the the, the trust. But uh, again, by Friday, I might, have, <laughs> I might have changed my mind. So I don't know. What do you think is going to happen? globally? I have a few
0: few thoughts. Yeah, go. uh, With regard to Biden, yeah, I think he's doing a spectacular job. That's one of my favorite things about him as president is he's so nice. But man, has he got brass knuckles in his pocket? Yeah. And he takes them out when it's time, and we've seen him do it a couple times already. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I am not worried that he is unwilling or unprepared or incapable of fucking up Russia. Uh, That's not really my concern. And what you were saying about, you know, well, he's done a good job, so I kind of feel like maybe I should just go with it. I'm of two minds about that. Uh, Having grown up in this country and being the age that I am, which is just the right age to have spent my entire life watching insane wars in the Middle East for no reason that people lied about. Mm -hmm. Part of me is like, oh yeah, fuck that guy, I mean, I'm I'm gonna do my own research, so to speak. <laughs> um, but but you're right. We're at an, this is more like World War II. We're at an inflection point where there's no moral ambiguity about what's going on. No, no. They're just gonna kill everyone and level Ukraine, and they already did it in Syria, and no one seemed to care at the time, which really bothers me. Yeah. And um, then they're they're not gonna stop there. So this really is that kind of good versus evil war that we all saw movies about with Tom yep. Hanks in them, like a million of them and they're all interchangeable. And as much as it makes me bristle, the idea that in wartime, you're supposed to just support the president and say aye aye sir to whatever he says, that's true. That, that is how you all get in lockstep and you win a war. Yeah. I just have trouble with it because I grew up with presidents lying about weapons of mass destruction and then having crazy wars. So every time I think about it, I'm like, yeah, I know that's really what we should be doing, but also I don't want to, and I'm not sure why. And I bet most people feel that way because it's been 20, 30 years of bullshit, Yeah.
1: just bullshit,
0: just war over money and oil. And and, um, the thing is, oftentimes when you identify the source of your irrational feelings, they go away. So for anybody listening, if you feel that way, it might be uh, George Bush's fault. And <laughs> you should meditate on that for a minute and then let it go. Because this really, this really is gonna have to be a team effort, like all of NATO and all of Americans and just get in line with it. I think Putin's done for. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think his security, he, he's lost his spies and his secret police and everybody's so focused on oligarchs they don't realize those are human wallets they're not going to kill him they're cowards and they're just like a bunch of fat old men and they mostly want this to stop so they can go back to banging their mistress in the maldives
2: yeah
0: the people who are going to take him out are his own security apparatus
2: patrashev yeah
0: yeah and uh That's probably why he has 40-foot-long tables. Absolutely. And uh, I don't think we'll necessarily know when it happens, which is the problem. We're all looking at this like it's a video game. Like if we beat the boss, it's over. (laughs) But it's not over. (laughs) Somebody else will take his place. And yes, they'll probably not bother killing him if they aren't going to try to make this stop because it's hurting them. But it's complicated because we all want to protect Ukraine, we want to make them stop what they're doing to Ukraine. But at the same time, what they're doing to Ukraine and what we're doing to them in response is uniting the Russian people in a way no one has seen since the fall of the Soviet Union. And if his security apparatus kills him, a different creep will take his place. If the CIA goes and kills him and puts in regime change, it'll just be a different dictator. For it to stick, for it to matter, for Russia to be a democracy, the only people Putin's really scared of have to get him. And that's the Russian people. They yeah. have to get rid of him themselves. And it's hard. It's excruciating to watch because, God, it's going slowly. Yeah, But you have to understand these people have no living memory or even generational memory of self-rule. Their grandparents lived in the Soviet Union, and they grew up with Putin and... And before the Soviet Union, there were just bad czars. So the
2: the leadership of Russia, if you look back, is is, really bad. horrific. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I I wrote about Fabergé eggs and Russian money laundering in stone. There's a whole chapter about it. And I don't remember what I was talking about. But at one point, I said something about Russian history and czars. And I said, you know, like everything about Russian history, it's baffling because yeah. it's just it's it's almost like somebody wrote it as a dark comedy. It couldn't be any worse oh wait it's worse. <laughs> and and so I feel like you have to have a little patience with the these people who this is their culture this is their history from where would they get the balls to demand democracy? And given the information bubble they live in how much do they even understand about how it works? So there's that. But I think ultimately what what is in the balance here is how long does NATO let Ukraine be beaten senseless versus how long is it going to take Russians to overthrow their own government? And I think there's probably a little bit of a gamble going on there. Yeah,
2: it's a game of hoping chicken. Hoping Ukraine can hold out. Yeah,
0: long enough. Because if we intercede, which we could, NATO could roll into Ukraine, make this stop in a hot minute. And if they wanted to, keep marching east Yep, and then end up in Moscow. The Russian military is, is it's flattering to say a paper tiger. It's a big, rusted out, non-functioning tank from the Soviet era. It, it doesn't do anything. These people have never fought in a real war. Half of them don't want to, they're children. It would be no big task at all to just win that war for NATO. But the minute we do, everybody in Russia is suddenly told, see, see, the West is coming for you. They hate us. This was their fault. They're big bullies and they just killed your sons. And I think that's part of the reason that this maddening restraint is being shown. Not really because anybody thinks he's gonna nuke someone. He's not yeah.
2: No, that's a good point. It, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way. By setting it up, the propaganda that way, he's given himself a, a line of defense. But mm-hmm. I also feel like, you know, within the borders of a country, that country needs to be self determinate to a degree so that, you know, d- d- as with the first Gulf War, which people listen to my podcast are tired of hearing me talk about the first Gulf War, but, you know, Saddam went into Kuwait, we made him leave Kuwait, and we did not go get him. We just said, that's it, you're done. Um, and there was a lot of people that, that criticized that move, but it worked. It was effective. It stopped his imperial ambitions forever. And th- the, the mistake that Putin made here is going into a sovereign nation. You're not allowed to do that. You cannot do that. It will not stand. So getting him out of Ukraine is the goal here. You know, mm-hmm. Going into Russia and having regime change, then you're, then you're looking at a whole other thing that we, you know, we haven't had uh, very good success with that. In the last, or we've
0: had a lot of really good success with it, and you don't hear about the successful ones, <laughs> which I suspect is more the case.
2: That could be. We we I mean, used why to be would very they good keep doing Look,
0: it. If it didn't work, sometimes it worked
2: in Germany and it worked in Japan after mm-hmm. World War II. It worked in 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 other countries after World War II. So it it doesn't not work, but um and maybe and I think in a place like Russia it could probably work well. But you know, it, there's hey, a lot work going on.
0: Okay, but it would be a band aid. It yeah. would be we've replaced dictator with a dictator that's slightly friendlier to us and your neighbors whereas if they do this themselves that really is a watershed moment historically yes and ah no no hatred to russians but the country itself has been dragging us back for hundreds of years by refusing to live in the same century as the rest of us whatever century it is they're just like nah nah I mean, they still had serfs in, in like yeah. the 1800s and the rest of the world had pretty much gotten rid of that right after the black plague. So if yeah. they overthrow their own government and go, we want some kind of democracy and we're definitely gonna elect someone you find appalling because that always happens. Americans always go, yeah, democracy, do it. And then they have the right to choose and they choose something they like. And we're like, are you fucking serious? That's what you wanted? You voted for like a cleric? Um,
2: I, I think that after Trump, we're not allowed to ever say that again. <laughs> well- After who we elected.
0: <laughs> you know, we're allowed to say it, but it doesn't diminish the fact that sovereign nations are allowed to elect whoever the hell who they want. Yeah. And the, if they manage it, they'll probably elect someone we don't like and everybody will be like, oh, that wasn't worth it. But, but the point is- they will no longer be existing in a different century than the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. They will have joined the modern world and it will isolate China in a huge way. And I mean, if you think a successful democracy on Russia's doorstep was destabilizing to Russian fascism, which is the big argument about Ukraine, he has to kill them because they're a successful thriving democracy and they have cousins and parents in Russia who are like, but what, huh? Yeah. Why can you have nice things? What is this democracy you speak of? If that was destabilizing to Russia, just little Ukraine, if Russia has a revolution and becomes some sort of democracy, what will that do to China? That's, (laughs) that will really fuck them up. Wow. That's a real shift in the weather.
2: Yeah, that's that's too much. That's too much to think about.
0: Well, but, but you you're have right. to. You're right. It's When a good you're point. thinking about something, it's you have to point. game it out 10 steps further than you're interested in.
2: Yeah. Will yeah.
0: it make them more hostile because they're cornered? Will it make the people in China go, wait a minute, what's happening? Maybe we want to vote. Um, because you know, they are watching Russia as a test case. It's why they haven't invaded Taiwan yet. It's yeah. not going well for Russia. And it's, it's such a big country and it's such a big part of the, the axis of assholes right now that if that were to change, it really would change the political climate of the world. Yeah. It it really would be, you know, most of us are in the 21st century being democracies. The rest of you don't want to think about it.
2: Yeah, I think we all need to get get into the 21st century. Um, Yeah. There's a lot to think about. This was a good discussion, Asia. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Um, so, okay. So the documentary, it's called Nothing Lasts Forever. When can we actually watch this?
0: Well, I don't know when this is playing, but um, right now, okay. today, today, it just premiered at South by Southwest. Okay. And once that's over, I think it lasts about a week, they're going to run it in theaters but if you don't want to go to a movie theater, after that, it will stream on Showtime. So okay. in probably uh, eight weeks.
2: Okay. So we'll look for that on Showtime. That's called Nothing Lasts Forever. Um, and you have two books here on my on my desk. Stoned, which we talked about. The Truth About the Lies. And we can find you on the Twitter at Aja yeah. Raden. A-J-A-R-A-D-E-N.
0: Mm-hmm. And there's a preview for the movie.
2: Oh, yeah. It's good. Movie. I'll, I'll, yeah, put, it in, I'll put it in the. I'll put it in the in the show notes. The preview is good, so I'm excited to see the movie. It's going to be good. So, um, thank you so for much. I'm excited to see it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's going to be good. Um, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate My it. My pleasure. The prevail theme song is by Matthew Fossa. Sophia Tarashenko provided the Russian introduction. Voice talent is provided by Tally Briggs, Signatella, Stephanie Saint John, Brett Petticord. Ryan Byrne at History Falls Apart, and me. Thanks to Allison Gill, Molly Hawkey, Kenai Williams, and everyone else at MSW Media. Please subscribe to the Prevail website with updates every Tuesday, Friday, and Sunday. Your $5 monthly subscription funds the site and the podcast. Visit gregoliar.com to learn more. Thanks for listening. Drive safely. Don't forget to tip your server. Until next time, we shall
1: prevail.